this morning. Lord, we come to you, actually I come to you and just ask very simply that you would replace me and that you would be speaking instead of me speaking. Draw us to you, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, Holy Spirit. Take the truth of the word of God and apply it deeply within us. I am your vessel. Use me for your purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're doing something unique with this sermon, we're reading actually the Word of God out loud. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As we continue our series of Acts 29 and beyond. Now, Shannon, listen to this. How many of you like to watch TV? Most of the hands are going to go up, right? At least those that are honest, right? Who doesn't doesn't watch TV? Who doesn't own a TV? All right, so this is going to be somewhat relevant. All right, when I was growing up, I'm going to date myself here. There were, and I don't watch TV shows anymore, but when I was growing up, the popular shows were in the 80s, yes, Life did exist for some of you in the 80s. What were some of the popular TV shows? One was Chips. That's like 70s, the 80s, but yeah, Chips was there. Dukes of Hazard. Dynasty. I didn't even think of that one. Dallas. Wow. The Cosby Show. Thank you. Someone normal, not just some drama. The Cosby Show. What else? Miami Vice. Thank you, Frank. What? Knight Rider? The A-Team. Thank you. That was what I was looking for as well. About the A-Team. I remember that one growing up. Okay. Some of those, they, they, they're movies now. Like there's a, um, a couple years ago, it was a Miami Vice movie. There was an A-Team movie. Okay. Um, but I remember liking the A-Team because it was, you know, B.A. Baracus. And uh, the van and all of that, bad attitude, Baracus. Anyways, the leader of that TV show was a colonel. Remember that? Colonel Hannibal Smith. And what was his popular catchphrase? Do you remember this? Who said that? Joe, God bless you. Yes. I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. It's kind of how he says it, with a cigar in his mouth. Just remember that, Hannibal Smith, I love it when a plan comes together, because that's exactly what's happening here. God's plan of redemption is it's coming together now. It's kind of a neat thing to see. Okay? Now see, Shannon, I just made that up like 40 minutes ago, and I kind of hooked you guys a little bit. Not my best introduction, but it'll do. All right. Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, meaning the execution of Stephen the first Christian martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. By the way, that's not Philip the disciple. That is Philip, one of the seven that were chosen by the apostles, along with Stephen. Kind of like your, your first deacons, you may call it that. But Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, remember that, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he has led, he, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. 
And the eunuch said to Thad, insult to injury. And Manasseh rejected Jerusalem as a center of worship, and they built a new place on Mount Gerizim up in Samaria. You can kind of see that, I think, right here. This isn't working anymore. Can you go back one? There we go. You can see that, where Samaria is. Kind of a mountain right there. See it, right? So now you have two places of worship. Jerusalem, right? And what? Mount Gerizim. That's why the woman at the well says what? We, where do you worship? What's the true place you worship? Now you understand that. Well, that was a straw that kind of broke the camel's back. From then on, the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews and Samaritans, they just didn't have any dealings with each other. These were God's people who were to do what? Be a blessing to all the nations, right? Remember, Abraham was called to be a blessing. They were called to be a blessing. In other words, they're not doing their job. You got it? With me so far? Okay. So with that background information, how is God going to unite this new organism, this new body called the church? Well, here's what he did. What does verse 14 and 17 say? When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, what did they do? They sent Peter and John, and God had withheld what? Or who? The Holy Spirit. Until the apostles from the church in Jerusalem could have blessed them with the empowered Holy Spirit. Now let me be clear in this, because this is confusing. The Samaritans, when they heard the message from Philip, they believed they were Christians. Acts 8.12 and 8.14 tell us they believed, they received the word of God. Therefore, that means that the Holy Spirit was what? Deposited within them and sealed them for the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1. But they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which was the promise of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John arrived. Well, how can I say that? Well, because if you read the story in Acts chapter 8, I believe that the signs and wonders that happened at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell, what happened? Started speaking in tongues and different languages and so on. I believe that that happened, at least some of that happened, again in Acts chapter 8, because it says that Simon saw what was going on. And he wanted to do with what? With that. He wanted to buy that miraculous power. So obviously some miracles must have happened. But God wanted to make sure that what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 also was repeated again in Samaria. And there's another reason for the delay. And this is important to understand. That if the Spirit of God had, I think, had fallen immediately on the Samaritan church when they received Christ, there would have been no connection to the church in Jerusalem. And what would have remained? The division, exactly. But what did Jesus pray? I pray that they may be one. John chapter 17. And God, his, the Father, answered, I believe, the Son's prayer. He held back the coming of the Spirit of God until the apostles could arrive from Jerusalem and allow the Spirit of God to come upon them through the laying on of their hands. Therefore, in a very powerful way, both Jew and Gentile together 
might know the priority of the unity of the church. They are to be one. And you don't have to go far. You don't have to remember that far back, perhaps. Or you can simply hear about it or read about it. That the unity of the church is one of the things that is always attacked. And it seems to almost never exist. Churches split and divide because they are not unified. Yet that was really the reason why the Son of God died, is to make the two people one. And the churches, by the way, for the stupid reasons that churches split, i.e. over carpet collar, yes, it's happened before, that's nothing compared to the racial hatred and bitterness that the church overcame in the first century. And so it's really kind of ridiculous and how it must grieve the heart of God when we get caught up in these trivial matters and it's a divided church. Now, this text, however, as much as that is important, the, I think that the, the real point of Acts chapter 8 is the second part here. Let me get past this. Is a faith that does not save. It's going to be contrasted with a faith that does save. Let's look at our story again. Now, Jesus taught in the Gospels that wherever the Gospel message is preached, and this is what I do not like about being in ministry, there's always two results. There is true faith, and then there is false faith. Now, this is illustrated in many ways in the New Testament. The parable of the wheat and the tares, the faithful and the unfaithful, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil. You have abiding branches and branches that are what? Cut off, etc., etc. Both of those responses to the gospel are always there whenever there is the preaching of the gospel. So today we might say this, that there are true believers with a faith that saves and believers who make a mental assent or agreement, but whose faith does not save. And it's sometimes hard to tell who they are. That becomes a key to understanding Acts chapter 8. Simon, who takes up most of this chapter, becomes an illustration of faith that does not save. And this is to be understood at the very beginning of the ministry of the church, that there will be both in the church, people with a faith that saves and people with a faith that does not save. Jesus had forewarned us earlier. Just listen to Matthew 13, 24 through 30. In fact, just go there. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. This has plagued the church from the very beginning. This is one of the dangers to my adult Sunday school class of sharing the gospel. Because every other world religion makes you earn the favor of a God. Not Christianity. You can't do that. He's earned the favor of God for you. You simply need to receive the free gift. And that is easy. But that message is always connected to an idea of a death to self. A denying yourself. A surrender of your life. So it's easy to see that I can sit there and believe. But my life doesn't really show it. Then that means 
that you never really believed. This is what we're going to see here in the story. Verses 24 through 30, Matthew 13. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in, in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let us both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now fortunately for us, Jesus gives us the interpretation of this parable. Look at verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went to the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sold them is the devil. What is going on here? Do I have something back here? Anyways. Speaking of the enemy. And the enemy sold them as the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and law lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The apostle John bears witness to his writings when he says this. This is the very beginning of the church, by the way. A church that the apostle John is a part of. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. It's a free gift of eternal life. I believe. I want eternal life. I believe. I'm a Christian. And yet not all who have that faith are saved. Now, how do we know this? Let's talk about Simon. Simon is often called Simon Magus. Your Bibles may say that. Or Simon the Sorcerer, depending on what version you have. Well, the word for sorcery here in the Greek is a word that means, it's the Greek word magion. You know what that means, obviously? Magic. But its original meaning is to be skilled in this magic lore. Now, do you remember the men who came to the birth of Jesus Christ? What were they called? They're called magi in actual Greek. That's the same word. So this magic lore is the priest religion of a Medo-Persia that was connected with Zoroastrianism. Kind of a combination of astronomy, astrology, kind of like horoscopes, kind of a mixture of science and superstition. And the people who practiced magic like Simon were astrologers, they were soothsayers, uh, sorcerers who dealt in incantations, charms, divination, spells, and so forth. Basically, it was the occult. And its origins go back to, just an FYI to you, 
the Tower of Babel. That's where it all began. In the plains of Shinar, the Tower of Babel. Now, as you read the story in Acts chapter 8, through demonic influence, Simon had deceived the people, it says, from the least to the greatest. Do you see that? With his counterfeit miracles. And he exalted himself when he announced to everybody that he was some great one with the power of God. In other words, we would say that Simon had a God complex. The early church father, Justin Martyr, says in the area where this event happened in Acts chapter 8, they found a stone at the foot of a supposed statue in Rome. This is what it read. Simone Sancto Dea, which means to Simon the Holy God. That's what they thought of Simon. Now, as you might expect, Simon taught, along with his practice of magic, a kind of pseudoscience or pseudo-philosophy of which we find traces of it in the false theology called Gnosticism. Now, amongst other things, Gnosticism says that there are series of describing divine emanations that are like steps coming down to man. And these emanations are kinds of manifestation of God. And the word Gnostics often used for these manifestations was in powers. Let me explain it to you. To Simon, it means this. God self-discloses himself in a series of emanations, some of which become incarnate in human flesh and thus reveal God to men. That's why the Gnostics said Jesus was simply one of these series of emanations on this kind of ladder of emanations. But guess who claimed to be the top of the ladder? The top emanation. It was Simon. He was a great one. See, and that is the problem for Simon in salvation. That's where it all begins. If you have a wrong view of man or of self, it prevents you from coming to God. Now, Philip comes to the Samaritan town, and the town is under heavy demonic influence, And what happens when the gospel comes? This is why it mentions this, by the way. The gospel and the power of God is greater than the power of Satan, and he's casting out demons and evil spirits. That's why it's mentioned here. And actually, he's casting out the demons and evil spirits that had been brought to the region through Simon's magic. Now, as people are being set free, Simon's audience is what? Diminishing, it's getting smaller. Now, amazed at this greater power manifested through Philip, what does Simon do? He claims to believe. He gets baptized, meaning he's in the water baptism, and he continues to follow Philip, it says in 8.13. Now, that all sounds good for Simon, but I'm saying to you that Simon is an illustration of a faith that does not save. Let me tell you why. Look at verse 13. What was Simon fascinated with? The power. He was fascinated with the signs and wonders that were taking place. And as the story unfolds, we discover he was searching for what? More power, rather than searching for Jesus, the Messiah. Simon reminds me of the crowds that followed Jesus because of the many signs he performed. And yet the majority of the crowds despite all the signs and wonders, did they believe? No, they did not. Up to 50,000 people were following Jesus. And yet, at his ascension, how many were there? 120. So the signs and wonders didn't move anybody, in this instance, to faith. 
in Jesus Christ. Notice Peter's words to Simon. They show a heart that had not been transformed after believing. Now Simon claimed to be a believer so he could buy the Holy Spirit and gain the magical power that he lacked. This was a common practice for sorcerers. They exchanged their tricks and their incantations for money. So Simon's belief, or his reason for believing, was motivated by what? Selfish reasons. Greed. This is a simple point here, but we all struggle with this at some point in time. But, folks, salvation isn't something you add to your life. It's not Chris Stuffelman and I add Jesus to my life so I can get eternal life. That's not how it works. It's supposed to be Chris Stuffelman when I come to Christ, then it is Jesus Christ. That's what you see. Chris Stuffelman is to die. And so salvation is a, it's not something you just add to your life. It's a total transformation of life. Simon was also, it says, full of bitterness and still in bondage to sin. Now here's the thing. What had Simon experienced? Well, he'd heard the gospel message. Obviously he understood it to some extent. What else did he experience in the gospel being presented? Signs and wonders. Great power. Okay. So he had biblical teaching. He saw the power of God. He obviously continued with Philip, so he was in some sort of fellowship. And yet, look at verse 22. What does Peter say? He doubts if what? God would forgive him. So despite all of that, Peter knows that if you don't believe by now, Simon, with all that you experience, you will probably never believe. I doubt that God will forgive you. It's like in the book of Hebrews, those Jews that were pressured to deny Christ and return to Judaism. And the writer says what? You've experienced the teaching of God. It's reasonable. It makes sense. You've tasted of the heavenly gift. You've seen the powers to come, the signs and wonders, all of that. You've experienced fellowship. Maybe you've even seen answered prayer. The evidence is there. And if you deny Christ and go back to Judaism, you're done. It's impossible to be brought back to repentance. That's the point. And that's what happened, I think, here to Simon. Simon also didn't show fruit in keeping with repentance. When he was confronted with his sin, how did Simon respond? Look at verse 24. You're right. I've sinned. I'm wrong. Please forgive me, Lord. No. How does he respond? Basically, he says to Peter, you do something to save my hide. I mean, there's no confession of sin. There's no asking for forgiveness. And there is certainly no repentance that accompanies salvation. Finally, how do I know Simon is an illustration of a faith that does not save? Well, church history tells us that the early church fathers claimed Simon was one of the founders of Gnosticism at the time. Simon did not continue in the faith. He had a faith, but the faith that does not save. Now, let's contrast that with the, uh, in verse 26, with the faith that does save. An Ethiopian eunuch, of all things. This is, when you understand this, it's a really incredible story. Here's the background. Samaria received the gospel through Philip, right? It's now time for the gospel to take the next step to the uttermost part 
of the earth. And we're going to see here that where does God send Philip after he's in Samaria? He wants to go down to here, right? To Gaza. And he's going to share the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. This was pretty radical. Here's why I say that. You will now understand this. Ethiopia, by the way, as we know it today, it's a small country, right? In that time, it was all of Africa south of Egypt. So it was a massive kingdom. The king of Ethiopia was thought of as a god, a small g, a son of the sun, S-U-N. As such, he was too sacred to take care of the menial, secular functions of royalty. So the king delegated this responsibility, this is so funny, to the queen mother, who ruled over the secular functions of the kingdom. It seems to me that a lot of women are far more administrative than the husbands, it seems like. But he was a god. I can't touch that. I can't do it. I'll send it to my wife, to the queen. Now, her title was... Candace, that is not the queen's name. Much like Pharaoh is just a title. It's not the name of the actual Pharaoh. Now, this eunuch worked for the queen and was a man of great authority in a kingdom as vast as the majority of the continent of Africa. Not only that, he was in charge of all of the treasure for the queen. So he was trusted, respected, and honored. He was also a eunuch, and this is important to understand. Now, a eunuch is a designation of a man who has had his male organs removed. This was done back then to individuals that were serving in a harem, for obvious reasons. But because of this, eunuchs very often rose to other places of prominence in the kingdom in which they served. And as the case in this man, he rose to the position of the queen's treasurer. Now, what you have to understand is what the Old Testament said about being a eunuch. I'm just going to read it to you because it's kind of graphic, but Deuteronomy 23.1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed, whose male organ is cut off, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, God was so against this practice, in a particular pagan practice, he actually threatened Israel that if they did this, they'd be cut off from fellowship with him. The Jews despised this practice because it was also a rite of pagan priests. They went through this particular operation in order to assign themselves to their own pagan gods. So becoming a eunuch was a part of idolatry or idol worship. Therefore, this Ethiopian eunuch, where is he traveling to? Well, he's coming to Jerusalem to worship. He would not be allowed to go into the temple area, based on Deuteronomy 23.1. He would even be shunned from being a proselyte. Well, what's a proselyte? Well, it's a Gentile who wants to follow the ways of Judaism after going through all the prescribed rituals. A Gentile could become like a Jew, but they would be called a proselyte. A eunuch proselyte would be shunned. So here's this man, an Ethiopian eunuch. He had honor. He had prestige. He had unlimited wealth. With all those blessings, however, he was an empty man. So he went in search of God. 
And he travels from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if anyone would know this, but do you know how far it was for him to make the trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem? In that day. You want to guess? How many miles? 1,200 miles. At least 1,200 miles. Now, when you walk 1,200 miles, that's a long trip, right? You could probably look up on your phone right now, go to Google Maps, put in from here to someplace that's 200 miles, and it'll give you the, the driving distance, flying, driving, and what? Walking. So you get an idea of how long it would take. Now, there weren't paved roads back then either, so you need to take that into account. But, this man had a chariot, you say. Well, chariots in those days were not like chariots today. They were just little seats that you'd sit on, and it was on poles that was carried by men who walked. Now, when you're willing to go 1,200 miles, sitting in a box, carried by some men, what does that show? you got a hunger and a desperation for whatever you are seeking. So this man had a searching heart for who? God. Folks, that kind of heart is a heart that God meets. And you're starting to see the contrast between Simon and this Ethiopian eunuch, aren't we? Now, I want you to look at the great links, and this is what Luke is trying to tell us here in Acts chapter 8, that God goes through to meet this man as he heads back to Ethiopia after finding no satisfaction, because he's on his way back from Jerusalem. He doesn't find any life there. It's a lifeless, dead Judaism. Look at verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And in verse 29, he speaks again. The Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I mean, God is actively, do you see that? And very specifically, seeking this man. And now we know why. Notice the work of the Spirit in this man that is absent from Simon. He came to Jerusalem to worship, verse 27. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 28. By the way, What was Simon seeking? To worship, or was he seeking more power? More power. This man was willing to travel how many miles to worship? 1,200 miles. He's reading the Bible, the prophet Isaiah, so he's filling his mind with the truth in search of God. And we all know that what? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So Simon's mind was filled with what, though? Lies from his false religion. Verse 36 See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? You see, he was eager to obey. He wanted to be baptized. And as a result of his belief, he rejoices. Verse 39. Is there any more reasonable response to salvation than to rejoice? No, there's no other more reasonable response. But Simon thought salvation could buy him more power. So we see these contrasts of a faith that does not save in a faith that does say, but what does church history tell us about this Ethiopian eunuch? Well, the church historian Eusebius wrote this, that the, this Ethiopian eunuch, according to the tradition of the Abyssinian church, he became the founder of the church of Jesus Christ in Africa. Now, neither Philip, obviously, nor did this Ethiopian eunuch have any idea of what God's plans were. 
It's irrelevant. They're called to be obedient. And this what seemed like another person becoming a believer in Jesus Christ eventually led to the gospel being taken to the whole continent of Africa in the form of the Abyssinian Church, which is the, the historic church of Africa. A faith that does not save and a faith that does save. In the Old Testament, we're going to close with this. God's original plan, do you remember, folks? It was to reach the world with the gospel through the nation of Israel. It was strategically located at a crossroads of trade routes where foreign traders would be exposed to the truth of God and take that truth to their own nations. Israel was always to be a channel of blessing to the Gentiles. And over time, though, Israel became a separatist nation. In other words, they didn't want anything to do with Gentiles, believing in their God. And their attitude toward outsiders, coupled with their continual rebellion against God, resulted in the channel of blessing that Israel was designed to be. That blessing and that channel became clogged. The blessing stopped. Now, can you imagine, this is the point I want you to remember, what must have gone on in heaven this day in Acts chapter 8, when a new channel of God's blessings was created. And what was that new channel called? The church. And the church finally stepped out and reached the first Gentile. I don't know what went on in heaven. At that moment, but I'm sure it must have been one awesome celebration. And that's why, again, folks, I say to you, this is what I want you to do. We're not talking about just Jerusalem here and then Judea and Samaria. I'm asking you to simply take the gospel outside the parking lot here. You never know what God will do with that. Because, Shannon... God loves it when the plan comes together, doesn't he? Let's pray. Father, as the worship team comes up and as we close with a song, I just want to thank you.